walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hi everyone and welcome to the Camino Podcast, episode 2. I'm really excited for the set of guests that I have assembled for you today. We're going to hear from three pilgrims. Up first, we'll hear from the board chair for the American Pilgrims on the Camino, Cheryl Grassmowen. We'll be speaking with her from St. Paul, Minnesota. After that, we'll hear from Steve Watkins. Now, if you spend any time on the American Pilgrims on the Camino's Facebook page, you're familiar with Steve, who was posting up a storm while he was walking his recent pilgrimage on the Camino Frances. So I'm looking forward to talking with Steve about some of his initial reflections on his pilgrimage. And then we're going to speak with Christina Collins from Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, who's going to tell us about her favorite piece of gear. So that's the plan. It's a great geographical coverage today. I'm here in Portland, Oregon, speaking with people in Minnesota, Arkansas, and Virginia. So stick around, sit back, enjoy, and uh, I, I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm joined now by Cheryl Grassmoen, who is the chair of the board of directors at the American Pilgrims on the Camino. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Cheryl. My pleasure. So the first question I want to ask you is just what's your what's your background as a pilgrim? When did you first uh, experience the Camino de Santiago, and what are some of your early memories? My first time, my first of four, was in 2007. I walked uh, by myself from San Juan Pied de Port to Santiago. I uh, went slowly. I was age 56, not I wouldn't say in in the most fit person, uh, having been a a lawyer for many years sitting behind a desk. Mm -hmm. So it took me 42 days. And it was an amazing experience. And as um, people who are listening and you, Dave, know, once you get that uh, in your blood, it's hard to stop. Absolutely. Then I went back uh, in 2010, Mm -hmm. and I served as an hospitalera on the Meseta in one of the albergues, and then went back in 2012, walked the Portuguese, and volunteered again as hospitalera on the meseta again. Uh, then walked the Primitivo in 2013, and just this summer, the Sanabrese, uh, Camino Sanabrese from Orense in 2015, and then volunteered uh, two different years in the pilgrim office in Santiago. Wow, that's fantastic. So you've had all kinds of different experiences. I have, yeah. I've seen it from different angles, different perspectives. How how different is it being an hospitalera? What's what is that ex, what is that experience like? It's it's really in some ways very very maybe even more satisfying mm-hmm. because it's it's like you're a rock on the side of of a river <laughs> and you're watching the river go by and except unlike a rock, you work like crazy from early morning <laughs> to late at night, day after day after day for usually two weeks. Uh, but having the opportunity to talk to and connect with so many people from around the world and to get to know the villages or the city, wherever you're assigned, is a really great and, as I said, a rewarding experience. What's more physically demanding, being an hospitalera or a pilgrim? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, that's a good question. And I would say many days I would say being an hospitalera. But you do get to have a few hours a day, a little break, and 
they're both demanding, you know, in different mm-hmm. ways. Sure. But I, I love both of them. How did you first get involved with, uh, with APOC? I had, uh, it took me many years to be able to get the time off from work to go to the Camino. So in the interim, I would go to the gatherings. Mm-hmm. And uh, American Pilgrims on the Camino holds an annual gathering. And I went to a couple of them uh, before I walked and got to know some of the board members. And they actually, as they got to know me, they actually asked if I would consider coming on the board. Um, I'm an attorney, and I also mm-hmm. have I have volunteered with many nonprofits over the years, so I guess they thought maybe I uh, <laughs> could offer something of value without causing too much trouble. Yeah. But that's, that's how I got on the board. I've been on the board now. This is my fifth year. Well, 2016 will be my fifth year, and we term limit out uh, at six years. Gotcha. So just a, a couple years left for you. Yep. Yep. The end is in sight. <laughs> for those unfamiliar with the American Pilgrims on the Camino, what's what's the role of APOC and how has it changed uh, over the course of its history, if at all? It, it has changed a lot. It, it started out in the 1990s, uh, a number of academics on the West Coast and the East Coast and a couple of people who had walked the Camino. And as you know, it was fairly rare then uh, to walk the Camino. Mm-hmm. They would get together to talk about their experiences. Some of the academics would be talking about what they were researching and writing. Mm-hmm. And they called those gatherings. There was one in William and Mary. There was one out in California. And at some point, early around 2001 or two, they decided, let's actually formalize this into an association. There are uh, over 100 international associations, uh, Camino associations, and mm-hmm. we didn't. And, there, and so this was the attempt to formalize it. It is actually an IRS-recognized nonprofit organization. So it went from, in those early days, oh, maybe a couple hundred people who were involved to now we're just under 2,000 members. It's amazing. And we have members in all in forty nine of the fiftieth state. We're waiting for South Dakota to <laughs> produce a member, and then we'll come have on, all South 50. Dakota. I know this is my neighbor, <laughs> and and so we've changed from originally it was about having a once a year gathering where people could come together and talk about their experiences on the Camino, and then that gathering grew until now it's a couple hundred people, and mm-hmm. we move we have it different places around the country. Our, we had one this year in California. The one in April of 2016 will be in the St. Louis, Missouri area. And we move around the country to enable everyone to come. But in the interim, another thing that we're doing is encouraging chapters. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter up in your area, Dave, you may be familiar. Yep. The idea there is one of the parts of our mission is to gather pilgrims together. That's one of the, the essential three parts of our mission. And... If you do it once a year and people can't afford to come or it's, the time's not convenient, they lose that opportunity. So by encouraging chapter growth, these folks can get together more often. They can also, they can also uh, fulfill another part of our mission, which is to promote pilgrimage, promote mm-hmm. uh, on the Camino to encourage people to walk. And so they'll have educational sessions and information sessions. So we've got 31 chapters now, and I think by our next board meeting we'll have 32. That's fantastic. What do you attribute the growth in pilgrimage among Americans to? Is it just the Sheen effect, or is there something more going on there? Well, for sure, 
the Sheen movie as well as the Lydia Smith's movie Six Ways to Santiago have publicized the Camino. Uh, before them, Shirley MacLaine's book sure. publicized it to a certain extent, although then the infrastructure wasn't quite what it is today. But I think, my opinion is just the changing demographics in the United States. you got the baby boomers who are now reaching a point in their lives when they are looking to do uh, international travel. They're not Mm -hmm. afraid of international travel. Many of them traveled during college and afterwards. They've got some disposable income. Now they're having a point where reaching a point where they have time. Uh, They want to do something that's physically active. That certainly is a characteristic of this aging group. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of interest in spiritual seeking in the United States too. And the Camino, while it started as a religious pilgrimage, it's much less so now, but it still has that element of uh, personal personal seeking, spiritual seeking. So I think those are a lot of the reasons uh, behind this phenomenon. We're going to see over 12,000 Americans uh, arriving in Santiago this year, over 260,000 people total. Yeah. Arriving in Santiago. And we issue credentials, the Pilgrim Passport, through American Pilgrims on the Camino. That's part of our our mission. And uh, this year we have issued, let me grab my, over seven, <laughs> about 7,500 credentials wow. to Americans, which is way up from yeah. earlier years. So it just builds and builds. That's amazing. Um, do you, in your mind, do you think it's going to continue to build? Like, do you see... a, a a ceiling on the horizon, or do you see the numbers just continuing to grow as we move forward over the next five to ten years? You know, that's, everybody's asking that question. I was a participant in a conference in June in Santiago, mm-hmm. a conference of international associations, and everyone's asking that question, but they've been asking it for years. Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of factors that are going to change the Camino. One is the Camino Frances is getting so crowded that uh, I think that will discourage some people. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we are, as an association, and others are, too, encouraging first-time pilgrims to consider some of the other routes. Mm-hmm. You're very familiar with the northern routes, and, and they're gorgeous yeah. and uh, well-maintained, and uh, they've got albergues and villages. So people should be not thinking that there is one real Camino from Mm -hmm. San Juan to Santiago. That is one route. Uh, If we could see, encourage more people to to go on Portuguese, the Primitivo, the Ingles, uh, some of these routes, which are really nice and historically authentic, I think that would relieve some of the stress. But but my prediction is, if we don't relieve some of that stress, I think some people are going to be discouraged by the stories that now you see on social media about, oh, there's so many bad bugs and it was so crowded right. and we couldn't find a place to stay. That discourages people from going. Mm-hmm. Short of that, I think I think it's going to keep going. Yeah. I really do. There was, of course, the much publicized and, and, and tragic case involving Denise Thiem's disappearance and, and murder um, this last year. What were the ramifications of that case for American pilgrims and for your work with APOC? Well, it was unimaginable and uh, very, very tragic for the family and the friends, and it continues to be. Uh, we were in 
contact with some of our international partners in Spain in Santiago through from April until uh, September and I think even before the discovery of her body there was an understanding of the full nature of this crime I think there was a feeling that we need to be more attentive to the security of pilgrims one of the things that I saw happen and I was pleased to see is that a group of Americans started a Facebook group to connect people walking alone with each other. Mm -hmm. Also, when I've been in Spain and what I've been hearing is people in the villages and in the albergues are paying a little closer attention to what's going on. Hmm. And, and I think all of that attentiveness is a really positive thing that's, that emerged from this really horrible thing. And we're doing something as simple as we've now produced a bookmark uh, when we send out each credential starting in 2016, we'll include a bookmark with emergency numbers on it. Just to remind people they need to, if especially if they're walking alone, they need to be aware of uh, how, to, how to get help in Spain. It's one of those things that if you haven't traveled, you don't automatically connect that 911 may not get you the results you want in there. Spain. Exactly. <laughs> 112, I think, isn't that it? Yeah. Yeah, 112. And there are other tragedies, too, that happen on the Camino. Uh, while I was in Spain in June, a woman, a Spaniard pilgrim, was crossing the highway and was struck and killed in the middle of the day. Yeah. Uh, many people, many of our members and Americans don't know that there's a law in Spain that you need to wear a reflective vest or reflective material if you are walking on or on a highway. Hmm. Yet... I don't know about you, but I've never done that. Um, Me neither. And I, that's something I, I know now, after reading about this tragedy of the woman who was killed in June, that we should be doing that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, think there, I think that the Camino was kind of an idyllic thing, and, and maybe we were too idealistic about the Camino, but it's like everywhere else in, in the world, you have to be careful and and watch out for yourself and watch out for each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for for your organization, for the American Pilgrims on the Camino? Do you guys have any big plans for what's next? And has there any <laughs> ever been any discussion of creating a, an APOC uh, albergue somewhere on the Camino? I'll start with that, that question. Yes, there is always talk <laughs> periodically about doing that, but we've learned from some of our international partners that's not such an easy thing to do. I bet. Uh, it's, it's operating, it's almost like, well, it's operating an organization with staff and uh, the physical facilities and uh, complying with all the laws, and it's just tough. We've figured out what we ca can do and should do is stay true to our mission, which is to support the infrastructure. That's one of the three. And I mentioned that one thing, one part of our mission is to encourage pilgrims, and another part is to um, gather pilgrims together. But the third part is to support the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we can do that, and we can do that well by our grant program. We send over about $35,000 each year to different albergues to um, help them become a better place for pilgrims to stay, uh, safer, cleaner. We, for example, have given money to albergues to fix windows that were not, were not uh, working well, to mm -hmm. install a fire exit, 
Uh, That's useful. Last year, yeah, year, I think it was <laughs> last year, yes. Last year we sent money to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to purchase a vehicle that could go up the mountain and rescue pilgrims if bad weather came in. Wow. So we're doing a lot of things like that. We also train people to go over to serve in the albergues. We have a partnership with the Spanish Federation of Hospitaleros. They operate about, or they, they place volunteers in about 17, I think it is, albergues. Most of them are on the Frances. And uh, they place about 500 people a year in these albergues to hmm. volunteer. So we have been trained in their training program, and we now train, we probably train close to 80 to 100 people here in the United States each year, and many of those people then go to Spain or even France or Portugal and volunteer in albergues. That's fantastic. So that, that's helpful. And um, let's see, well, so that that's really, I think, the essence of we do what we do, issuing the credentials, um, having the gathering, supporting the chapters, training hospitaleros, but we also try to have a very useful, rich website. Mm-hmm. But if someone's interested in the Camino, they can go on our website, they can see all the different routes, they can look at packing lists, they can figure out if there's a chapter near them, when the next gathering is if they've already walked, how they could train to be an hospitalero. And I guess those are the things that we're focusing on, knowing that we can do all of that well. Mm-hmm. And we can do that a lot better than we could to go over to Spain and set up a, <laughs> an albergue somewhere. Yep. That's great. And so if anyone wants to find that website and find that information, it's AmericanPilgrims.com. And if, .org. AmericanPilgrims.org. Yep. .org, sorry. And if uh, people want to become a member, what? how do they do that and what does that entail? Uh, go to AmericanPilgrims.org and there is a section on becoming a member. And as a member, you get our newsletter, La Concha and um, access to some of our other programs. It's very easy to do, can be done completely online. Fantastic, and finally, what's next for you? What's your next pilgrimage? <laughs> I'm finally <laughs> going to go to France. I'm gonna walk the Camino from Le Puy uh, for a few weeks next, probably next fall. And I've been putting that off because I, even my Spanish is lousy, but my <laughs> French is even worse. It's non-existent. So I'm gonna give that a try. I understand it's beautiful. It's just as historical, and uh, I'm expecting to see uh, have a whole different experience. Oh, it's incredible. I was just there over the summer with a group of students, and um, we had an incredible time. You know, if you have time, I, I strongly recommend the Soleil Valley, which is just spectacular scenery. So you'll have a is great that time. Right? Is that right on the same route from La Puy? Yeah, so from oh. La Puy, you are on the GR65, and right. then just after Fijac, uh, the route splits. The GR65 uh, proceeds in one way south, but you can also take the GR651, and that will um, pass through the Soleil River Valley, so you move away from the lot for a little while. But it reconnects um, near Saint-Soc-le-Popi, and... Um, it's, it's a fantastic walk, so I, I really recommend it. That sounds great. I'll have to do that. Uh, we've, our association's been in contact recently with a number of the associations in France uh, after the attack in Paris, mm-hmm. and we, we sent condolences, and we got back some wonderful messages, and uh, I think 
in some, what they were saying is, please come to France. It, it supports us. It makes us feel better to know that the community of pilgrims is interested in us and is thinking of us and supporting us. And it couldn't be any safer, you know, especially right. on the Le Puy route. You are outside of any major urban area. Um, it's uh, it's wonderful country um, territory, great walking. Good. And I think if people want more information uh, on a more casual basis, too, we have about 10,000 people who are part of our Facebook group. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a great place to post questions like, where should I stay in Le Puy and... and and how, how do I find this valley that Dave mentioned? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a very active, uh, thriving message board on there. Uh, well, Cheryl, thank you so much for making time for this. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Buen camino. Yeah, you too. Buen camino. Okay, I'm joined by Steve Watkins from Jonesboro, Arkansas, who recently completed his first pilgrimage on the Camino. Thanks for talking with me, Steve. Well, I'm happy to speak with you today. Thanks for calling. It was. Uh, I'm still at the point where I'm process. I've been home about ten days now, so I'm I'm going through the process that all pilgrims do when they return home, and I'm I'm processing what happened. So I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's going to go on for a while for you. So. <laughs> It's uh, it's part of the fun. There's that saying that the the Camino really begins when you arrive in Santiago, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, I think perhaps that's true. What uh, what are the basics? Where which route did you walk? Where did you start and finish? And what was the about how many days did you spend on it? Um, I was going for a total of 46 days, airport to airport, and I walked a total of 40 days um, while I was on Camino. I did the traditional Camino Francis route, started in St. John, and uh, finished up in Santiago. My goal um, from the beginning and and throughout was to continue walking on to uh, Estera. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually ran because of some injuries that I sustained and, and some other things. Um, I actually ended up having to take a bus to uh, Fistera. I'm glad I went on because it was one of the favorite parts of my trip. So my walking pilgrimage was St. John to Santiago, and, and I did that in 40 days. Congratulations. Thank you. What, what inspired you to, to do this? What inspired you to go on pilgrimage? Probably two or three things. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I hate to sound so superficial, but, I, you know, like so many other people from the United States and really across the world, about three or three and a half years ago, my wife and I were scanning through Netflix and we came upon this movie called Play. <laughs> and and uh, we sat and watched it. And I was, um, I was, I mean, honestly, I was completely mesmerized by, by the movie. I, it, in ways I personally identified with each of those main four characters, um, mm-hmm. e- each one of them. I mean, I, I saw some aspect of myself in, in the roles that they portrayed. And wow. um, so as the, you know, we watched the movie and I mean, I, you're, there's the scene in the movie where Yost uh, literally gets on his knees at the cathedral and he, and he crawls uh, to, to the, the statue of uh, St. Yeah. James. And I was, uh, 
I, I've watched the movie probably forty times uh, since I first watched it, and, and I and I weep every time that I see that. And uh, so as the credits roll, we watched the movie and the credits roll, and I, I kind of stared off into space uh, and, and said to my wife, "I said, you know, I'm going to do this, right?" And she said, "Yeah, I know, I know you're going to do it." So <laughs> um, and there was so never I, any conversation of no, sorry, go no, ahead. She, bless her heart, she knows me well enough to know that. Uh, I, I'm I'm a pretty reactive guy, and I'm 49 years old now, which is another reason I wanted to do this. I mean, I gave it, I'll be 50 years old in February, and so I kind of gave this to myself as a as a birthday gift. I ran my first full marathon when I was 39 years old, and so I've done this when I was 49 years old. I don't know what will happen at 59, but um, <laughs> I, yeah, I gave it as a gift to myself, and it was, I mean, it was also, it was a spiritual thing for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm coming on 50 years old now, and, and I'm kind of looking to God's guidance for what, you know, what the, the latter years of my life should be and what my purpose is during this time. And so, I mean, it was just a time for me to kind of thank God for his guidance, um, you know, these first 49 years and to kind of get his direction on what comes next. That's fantastic. What, what's, was there ever any consideration of your your wife going with you? This was, or this was something that you needed to do alone. Um, my works. I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, that's kind of how I like to think of myself. I mean, I have other odd jobs, but my schedule is mm-hmm. a lot more flexible than hers is. Um, at least at this moment. Although we both do travel a lot together, we travel a lot in Latin America together. Um, and uh, yes. We thought about it, but she knows me well enough to know this was something that I kind of wanted to do. You know, it was it was my desire to do it alone, and I just wanted mm-hmm. to go. Uh, I think we all need that. All of us need to, to look for dedicated periods of time when we can be alone with God or, or, or whatever it is in your life that – uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just good to be alone and, and think about the past and think about the future and, and reflect and, and and be introspective. And But I, I think um, at some future point, we will do the Camino again. I probably won't take her on the on the full route, but we may jump in at Lyon somewhere and do 10 or 12 days like that. So uh, I wondered along the way if I would ever have a desire to do it again. I was so exhausted through most of the most of the pilgrims, I thought, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm never, I'm never going to want to come back and do this. And here I am 10 days later and I'm already thinking about it. So yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, go back. We'll go addictive. back together as a couple. What's, what's one place that sticks in your mind from your pilgrimage that was particularly meaningful for you? What's, what's one location that stands out? I was, um, I love the beauty of Fistera, and I think that Dana, my wife, and I will go back there one day, and I, I think we'll spend some extended vacation time there. But, I mean, from a standpoint of something that was meaningful, you know, I think a thousand years ago, uh, the Hospitaliaros and, and all the places where pilgrims stopped along the way, there was this mm-hmm. predominant notion, I think, that uh, it was really important to take care of pilgrims and, and pilgrims. Uh, they cared for them, and they and they had genuine concern. And I mean, maybe it's not so much that way anymore. But you do occasionally come across um, the host or the hospitaliero who who still has that philosophy. And when I reached Pamplona, 
um, about five mm-hmm. days into my pilgrimage, I was already beginning to wear down a bit and the blisters were setting in and the physical wear and tear was starting. And I came upon an, an albergue there that was just a small, very modest place. And it was run by a couple of German guys. And mm-hmm. his, the German guy's name was Heinrich. And there was some connection between us that was really special. And he was just an extremely kind man. And he invited me to go to a uh, rosary with him on a Sunday night. And as much as I didn't want to walk to the cathedral <laughs> with him, I went ahead and did it because I wanted to be respectful to him. I'm not Catholic, but I was, I was pleased to do that. And mm-hmm. we just we had really good conversation. And the next morning before we left, he did the pilgrim blessing for us, which is a really nice time. But he and I had this this. Uh, I'm a journalist, and so I was actually doing some documentation along the way as well. And I interviewed Heinrich, and and I said, you know, Heinrich, um, I hear a lot about this magic on the Camino, and uh, I said, you know, I, I'm a really I'm a skeptical guy, and I don't really buy into that. I think we can have. Uh, you know, magic or whatever you want to call it, any particular place. What do you, you know, you see a lot of pilgrims come through. What do you think about Camino magic? And he said, he said, well, Steve, here's what you've got to understand. It really is a magical place. And, and this is why he said, uh, for this brief window, for this, this brief moment in time, you have people from all corners of the world who come together and they're on this singular path and everyone's headed in the same direction with singular purpose. And, um, there's unity. You know, think about it. There's yeah. unity among the pilgrim population. And along the way, everyone becomes everyone else's cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, you know, how great is it that in the, in the divided, crazy world that we live in today, um, that we can't have that everywhere, that I had to travel uh, 7,000 miles <laughs> to go find something like that but i from pamplona on i carried his thoughts with me the rest of the way and he was Mm -hmm. so right because it was so wonderful to have that spirit of unity with people from all around the world you know yeah one of the things that's always stood out to me i I take students on the camino is where else can you have 16 year olds and 60 year olds become peers essentially you know Yes. going through the same experiences, the same challenges. And, you know, there are those days when, you know, I have a 16-year-old who's in perfectly good health, feeling tired, and I'll just have him look over across the across the room at, you know, someone who's doing some pretty heavy work on their feet to be able to get ready to go out again the yeah. next day. And they, you know, they're, they're filled with awe, I think, for, for what others are doing. And it also reinforces that they've got it pretty good while they're out there. You bet. It's, it's, it's one of the great beauties of that experience. Yeah. So that's one of the great beauties. What's, uh, what's one of the challenges you've alluded to some of the, some of the physical challenges, but what was your, what was your greatest hurdle while on pilgrimage? Well, you know, I mean, you go back to the movie and, and you think about the way and, uh, we're all so influenced by media today and, and you think about the way and it's really not so much a movie about the Camino. The way he uses the Camino as a backdrop and it's a story of a man who's dealing with the you know, some of the shortcomings of his past. So when we think about the movie we, we don't really and, and when I even look back at photos that I took, um, and video that I took and you know, at different stages from Pamplona to Burgos to even Leon and, 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 and through there, 
I just kept thinking, this is so far. It's such mm. a, it's such a long way, and and your mind literally, and it's a good thing, I think. Um, your mind mm-hmm. literally does not comprehend the distance of of five hundred miles. It's a long way, and when I yeah. think back about it, I'm so happy. I, I think I think I'm happy that my mind couldn't comprehend it because. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, if if I had realized from from Burgos on how much further it really was, I, you know, I'm not sure how I would have felt about that. Yeah. It's just a long way, and the and the, the the wear and tear that it puts on your body, and and you know all the mental games that you play with yourself. It's good. Um, we should all do. We should all take on challenges like that. I think more frequently than we we do i've i do that occasionally you know every few years um and those are the times when i learn the most about myself when i really challenge my spirit and my body to very difficult things like that so yeah i mean the challenge for me there were many challenges but the sheer distance yeah was was it's it was um, just hard it's uh it's it's pretty crazy when you think about it. How often in our lives do we do exactly the same thing basically every day for 30 days, 35 days? Yeah. Um, for, I've, I've always been struck by that as well. The fact that it's, it is this rhythm that is unlike anything we ever experience anywhere else in life. And it's so cliche. And I mean, I hate to reduce, you know, such a wonderful experience to so many cliches and metaphors, but you know, literally, it, it is like you just have to get up every day and you just have to keep walking. I mean, you just have to get yep. up and you don't, you know, you may not feel like it and you may hurt, but you just got to get up and keep going. You just don't quit. You just have to get up and do it. And um, that that having experienced that transfers to, to a lot of the rest of our lives. Yeah. A common disagreement among pilgrims is whether it's best to unplug and be in the moment on the Camino or to remain connected to the outside world via their phone, email, social media. And you were very active on the American Pilgrims on the Camino page um, while you were on the road. Uh, how, how did that shape your experience? And are you glad you did it? I am glad I did it. Um, that was it was by design, and I kind of intended to. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I've got one of those guys that has ink in my blood, and I've been a journalist for 30 years, and so I think I would not have been true to myself if I hadn't. I, I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to tell the story mm-hmm. in real time, and uh, that was part of my. It was a big part of my pilgrimage, and it was a big part of my healing and. Um, my dad used to have a saying when he was alive, and I hated it when he would say it, but he would say, uh, don't, he would say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, and I mean, I would recommend for 99% of people who go on pilgrimage to completely unplug. I mean, just don't mm-hmm. do it. Um, I did it. I'm glad I did it. And it's, it was good for me um, to tell that story, and it. Uh, I think it enhanced my experience, and I'm actually continuing to write about it today. But no, we just don't get those opportunities today uh, often enough to unplug like that. And I, and I think most people should just 
leave the junk behind. Yeah. How did being an American on the Camino influence your experience? How many Americans were around you, and um, how were how were you treated? Uh, if it had any impact, how, how did how did it shape your experience? Well, you know, we're pretty isolated over here in the United States. I mean, where I live, and kind of in the middle of the country, I have to travel ten hours in either direction, north or south, to to actually get to another culture. And I I wish that we would all. <laughs> I wish that we would we would. I don't want to get too political. I, I spent six or eight years in political communications, but you know we're having this debate in the country right now about all these issues of immigration and language. And I personally think we'd be a lot better off if we built long bridges instead of high walls. But that's probably a discussion for another day. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I didn't meet that many people from the United States. I was surrounded by people from all over Europe and all other corners of the world. And um, it's so good for those of us from the United States to, I think, look back at ourselves through the lens of other people's eyes. I'm, I was mm-hmm. raised in a generation that where my parents and my grandparents taught me that uh, we come from, you know, the greatest country in the world. And maybe that was true in their generations. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite so sure that it is true anymore, and I don't know by what standard we measure the greatness of a country. Um, but the notion that we all, I think, tend to have that we're still that great country and that, that everyone looks to us with this great equity. I think we think that people either love us or hate us, you know, from other parts of the world. Yeah. And um, it's just not true. I mean, I think mm-hmm. they look at us with a lot of ambivalence. I think they're, I think they're fascinated by a lot of the things that are happening here now and things that are not necessarily so good. But yeah. people from other parts of the world are fascinated by what's happening here, not necessarily by our greatness. Um, but it's just, it, it's just, it's it's important to me to kind of get out of Arkansas and I love the South and, and, and I love <laughs> yep. where I'm, you know, I love where I live and I love uh, my culture, but it's all, it's very important for me to get out and, um, and look at, look at things through the lens of other people's eyes. And, um, I think we'd all be a lot better off if we did that. That's just my take. Yeah. So you walk for five plus weeks and every day pushing yourself through the challenges of pilgrimage, and then finally you make it to Santiago de Compostela, yeah. and you get to Monte de Gozo, and you walk down the hill, and you get to the bridge, and, and what are you feeling as you cross into the city, and what did it mean to you to, to, arrive, to arrive in Santiago? I wondered to myself before I left, and throughout the pilgrimage, what it would be like to arrive in Santiago. And um, about two weeks shy of Santiago, I began to experience some really, really severe shin splints. I mean, actually to the point where I was having some internal hemorrhaging uh, in my left wow. lower leg. I, I could see it bleeding inside. It wasn't coming out. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the bottom of my left leg was back at black and blue. And it hurt a lot. I mean, it really hurt. So those last 
five or six days instead of doing 15 to 17 mile days i was reduced to 10 to 12 miles so i really had to kind of slow my pace and i mean as i reflect back on walking into the square um i was Mm -hmm. so tired and was hurting so much that i think in that last week i think my mind kind of took my body over and really disguised a a lot of a lot of that pain and a lot of that feeling of how tired I was, because as I think back on it, I honestly, I don't remember. I mean, I, Mm. that's that, I don't know (laughs) if that makes sense, but I was just so physically tired. I I took off my backpack and I laid down on the square and Mm. I had wondered before, would I, you know, would I cry? Would I be emotional? I mean, what would it be like? And I was just so happy but I was done. Mm-hmm. I was just so I was just so very happy to be done. And I I remember walking into Santiago, looking around, thinking, "Okay, where will I stay tonight?" And when I lay down in the square, I looked over and I saw the Parador there in the square, and I thought, "That's my place for tonight. I don't care what it costs. I'm not walking <laughs> another step." Uh, and that's where I stayed that night. And uh, I boy, it was a good night's sleep on those clean sheets. I bet it was. It I was sure wonderful. hope it was. It was wonderful. Your experience, re- your experience resonates with me because my first pilgrimage, it, it also ended in pain and agony. And I, um, for my last three, four, five days of walking, it was pretty excruciating. My shoulders um, were just aching like mad. I did not make a good pack choice. I had too much weight on my shoulders. And yeah. week after week of that just sort of wore them down. And it was... Uh, it was a relief to finish. And, you know, it took me, I, not until my third pilgrimage did I actually manage to finish without pain. Um, and I feel mm. like there's a certain mental quality to that as well, that yeah. um, it's so easy to feel like there's a letdown at the end of the trip. Yeah. And it took me a while to develop that, that, uh, that focus, I guess, to, to hold, hold true to the end, to the last step. This is one thing I remember thinking, and it's and it's interesting because of the entire reason this pilgrimage started so many hundreds of years ago, and 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 it's also something else I noticed along the way. Nobody really talks about this much anymore, but when I got a little bit of rest that night, I kind of woke up and because my, my sleep patterns were very very irregular there, but I woke up mm-hmm. like I normally did around two o'clock in the morning. And I was there in the Parador, and I remember thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm literally yards away. I'm sleeping yards away from where lay the remains, an apostle of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of one of those. Of course, I knew the whole time that's where I was headed. But, you know, mm-hmm. just that the, the, the moment of reality thinking, okay, one of the 12 people that Jesus chose to spread the good news of the gospel, his remains are just right over there. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that's a big deal. Um, it was mm-hmm. a really big deal. And, uh, and that was special, you know, to be there. Yep. I have one last question for you. You've, you are now an expert. <laughs> you have now completed the pilgrimage, and uh, there there are many others who are 
starting to get ready for their first experience. So what's one piece of advice that you would pass on to help their experience? I think it would be this, and it's something that I learned um, probably a third or half of the way through. You know, a lot of us carry guidebooks, and there's there's different guidebooks, and some are better than others. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of those guidebooks have uh, recommended stages, what a day should be like. You know, maybe it's uh, maybe Thursday is 25 kilometers, and maybe the next day, you know, city to city. It's it's just a suggested schedule, and and sure. it's good to have that. Um, but my suggestion would be to new pilgrims not to get too caught up in it because here's what I learned. If your day, if your roughly planned day is 25 K and you're trying to get to Burgos today, uh, you know, if you're, if you come to a village that's 23 K and you're two K short and you see a place that's nice and you think you would enjoy staying there for the night. I found that my overnight, and, and, and I don't get me wrong. I mean, about eighty-five percent of the time, I stayed in albergues for you know seven mm-hmm. to ten, seven to ten euros uh, a night, and I and I think that's a very important part of pilgrimage is, is being in that environment. Occasionally, I would stay in a different place just because I needed the privacy and I, you know I needed to kind of regain myself. But my advice would be not to get too caught up in that recommended schedule. And if you're just a few K short of where you're going and you see a place that's nice, stop and stay there because your overnight rest occasionally is a lot more important than uh, the the perceived goal of, of being at a certain place. Mm-hmm. And that's how you heal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just to to, you know, it's, it's just, it just goes back to the general principle of just letting the day play out as it does. Don't get too caught up, you know. Just just try to be, just try to be there, and 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 let happen what happens. It's that's harder than it's harder for some of us than others. Mm-hmm. It's easy to fall into a pack mentality. Yes, it sure it, is. It's easy to fall in with that group and just feel like you want to go however far those other people in your pilgrim group are going and, and throw your own independence aside in order to be part of that group. Well, it was a big deal for me. I mean, like you were talking about um, that last 10 days or so when my legs began to hurt so much, I had spent the last 200 kilometers traveling with uh, two people who came to be very good friends. Uh, Naomi from, she's a teacher in California and Aida who is a, uh, she lives in Barcelona and, and we spent a, that became those two girls. I say girls are women. Um, they kind of became my Camino sisters in the in the last stage, and mm-hmm. it was kind of an unspoken thing with us. But we just knew that the three of us would walk into Santiago together. It didn't happen mm-hmm. because my legs began to hurt so much. I had to let them go on. Um, so yeah, you, that pack mentality that that idea can happen, but you just have to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Gotta take care of yourself. Yeah. Yep. So as you continue to process your experiences, you're doing it online. What's the URL for your blog so people can follow along? It is uh, just like it sounds, truth along the way, truthalongtheway.com. And I'm occasionally writing about, you know, I'm doing test chapters for a book that I'm writing uh, that I think I'll the working title for that piece right now is Pilgrim Strong. 
Um, it's a hashtag that I yes. came up with while I was <laughs> while I was you know putting things out there on social media, and and uh, we'll see where it goes. I just I want to kind of give an unfiltered account of what it's really like to to be out there and you know just like the conversation that we're having right now i want to kind of put that into written words and and maybe it'll be helpful to some people in the future that's awesome i look forward to reading it thank you thanks for uh thanks for spending some time with me steve i really appreciate hearing your story it's my pleasure dave i think it's a good thing that you're doing this i think it'll be helpful to uh, many generations of pilgrims in the years ahead that's much appreciated. I, yeah. I hope that we can uh, we can do that. Take care. Have a great weekend. Yes, sir. You too. All right, let's talk about gear. I'm joined by Christina Collins, who wants to talk about her favorite piece of gear on the Camino. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Christina. Thanks for having me. What is your uh, your Camino background? I walked in the kind of late spring of 2013. I had just graduated from university and I uh, was kind of walking it as like a little celebration. That's awesome. And uh, where'd you start? And did you did you stop in Santiago or where'd you where'd you finish? I started in Saint John and I did go to yep. Santiago. I didn't walk to Finisterre. I bust in. I was a little time constraint, but I did get to see the ocean. That's awesome. Um, so we're going to do a quick uh, either-or uh, quiz just to get a sense of your general gear preferences. So uh, did you wear shoes or hiking boots? I wore Tevas and socks. I'm a sandal Tevas girl. and socks. All right. Nice. Uh, did you use a water bottle or a hydration bladder? A water bottle. Did you go with a sleeping bag or a lighter weight sleeping sheet? I had a sleeping bag. I really regretted it. It was too too much? Yeah, way too warm. Even even in April? Oh, yeah. You get 20 people in a room. Body heat, man. (laughs) All right. Trekking poles, yes or no? Definitely yes. Definitely yes. And uh, did you go with a poncho or like rain jacket? I had a rain jacket but I think mm-hmm. next time I do the poncho. Gotcha. Wasn't okay, enough. So it, the, the, it, the jacket alone wasn't enough? Oh, yeah. You get sideways rain coming in. <laughs> yeah. Spring's a different story than summer for sure. Definitely. Cool. So what's your, what's your favorite piece of gear? What was the gear that was most important in your pack for you? Mine was actually I had a sarong. Which uh, I got it. I got the recommendation to bring a sarong. If you've ever seen the documentary Six Ways to Santiago, mm-hmm. um, when it was just first coming out, the director came by my school and did a Q and A, and that was her recommendation. And it hmm. turned out to be the best thing ever. It's it's a scarf if it's cold. Um, you know, sometimes in the the rooms you want a little bit of privacy. You can use it to make like a curtain in your bunk bed. Sure. Uh, if your towel was like still wet from the next day, it's an emergency <laughs> towel. It was it was really useful. It's one of the things great things about gear is when you have multiple distinct uses from that item that you can you can use it to fulfill a lot of different functions. Oh yeah, it was uh, it was incredibly handy. 
And it also functions as clothing, right? Yeah. So. Um, a couple times, like, you know, you want to get all your clothes washed if you get to a place and they have a nice looking washer and you're like, oh, if I could just get these pants in as well. So a couple times it was a skirt. Um, one time I was actually incredibly sunburned and I wore it like a cape just because I couldn't have the sun on my skin. But it was really warm that day, so I couldn't wear my jacket either. That's awesome. Could even be a tablecloth if you needed one. Oh, yeah, so many. It was it was really useful. I'm telling you yeah. guys just need to, like, go for it. It was so useful. You know, you know I take students on trips, and um, I still remember on our first trip, a couple of the girls brought along sarongs. And there were, there were some days when the guys, uh, in order to do laundry, borrowed the sarongs and wore them as skirts for the afternoon. And, uh, and they, were, they were quite pleased to have that flexibility. It's, it's a nice breeze, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Christina, thanks for sharing. Uh, I really appreciate having your story on that. Oh, no problem. This is, this is great. And that's going to do it for episode two of the Camino podcast. I want to thank Cheryl, Steve, and Christina for joining me today and telling their stories from the road. Remember that you can follow along with Steve as he develops his Camino book at truthalongtheway.com. And keep in mind that Cheryl's organization, the American Pilgrims on the Camino, can be found at AmericanPilgrims.org. Remember that you can find the podcast on SoundCloud. We'll be on iTunes soon, maybe at the time you're hearing this. You can find it on NorthernCaminos.com and also my personal site, DaveWitson.com. And you can reach me anytime at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Please get in touch. And tell us what's on your mind, and let me know if you have a story you'd like to share on air. And hey, why not spread the word about the podcast? Let the pilgrims in your life know about what we're doing here. Thank you. Thanks very much. Hope you have a good day.